If these out-of-date beliefs are to be called myths, then myths can be produced by the same sorts of methods and held for the same sorts of reasons that now lead to scientific knowledge. If, on the other hand, they are to be called science, then science has included bodies of belief quite incompatible with the ones we hold today. Given these alternatives, the historian must choose the latter. Out-of-date theories are not in principle unscientific because they have been discarded. Nat, back to Meiji Think. Here we are again. How's it going? Good. I have to say this book was not as fun to read as some of the other no. ones that we've done, <laughs> but the uh, the concept was, was definitely interesting. <laughs> yes. So today we're talking about The Structure of Scientific Revolutions by Thomas Kuhn. Yeah, pretty uh, like dense, I'd say, and like tough to uh, push through at parts, and not and not dense in a satisfying way, perhaps like Gold right. Rusher Bach was. It, just dense. <laughs> yeah, for a hundred sixty page book, like when yeah. we when we talked about doing this one, I was like, oh, it's just one hundred sixty pages. That's yeah, gonna be quick easy. read for made you easy. think. For made yeah. you think that's nothing, but seriously, for, uh, <laughs> but it's yeah, funny. I started reading it, and it was like it was a slog. I, I read some of it in college in my philosophy of science class, and he only had us read certain sections from it, which at the time I was like, huh, I wonder why he's only having us read part of this book. You know, what's in the rest of it? I never read the rest of it. And now reading the whole thing, I'm like, oh, this is why. <laughs> yeah, he was being nice to you. <laughs> he was. He was. It's also, it's also one of those books. I don't know if your highlight density worked out like mine, but it's, it's very front and back weighted. Where yeah, yep. There was exactly. I think there was a lot of really good like foundational material in the beginning, and then a lot of good like wrapping it up at the end, and some good tidbits here and there throughout. But you could probably get a lot out of it if you just read the first two or three chapters, and then the last chapter or two, and you'd get most of the core ideas. Which might be what your professor had you guys doing. I think that is what he had us do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to try to find it later. And I guess not to shit on this book too much. It was it was a really interesting concept. Like. Yes. Uh, which we'll obviously dive into. Like the actual content was really interesting. It was just clearly written for an academic audience and not for yeah. uh, like a popular science. Exactly. It's definitely yeah. it's the opposite of a popular science book. Right. Even though he it's pretty needed, popular from what I understand, like there are a lot of people who've read it. He needed a, a Malcolm Gladwell or someone to do the, the fun <laughs> yeah. poppy version of the book. <laughs> you know what? Somebody will probably do that. Like they will just do I, a pop science if somebody version has of it. Yeah. yeah. Because it's definitely, it's one of those books. I mean, we, we use the term paradigm shift so often, and I'm pretty sure it's from this book. Like, I, I think that he basically I, yep. coined that term. And it's such a common thing to say now. But how many people have actually, you know, read the book where it comes from? Not many, right. I imagine. Yeah, and it's used in tech. It's used in like everything. I mean, it's people use the term paradigm shift anytime kind of the rules of the game change, you know, in some way. So yeah, I actually saw some parallels in this, uh, speaking of games to finite and infinite games as well. In mm. that, like when there's a shift, like you're kind of playing a different game. And I think he uses the term occupying different worlds potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, Seeing the uh, world in a yeah. new way. Yeah. yeah. So I saw, I saw that we had that book, happy accidents that we covered, which this has yeah. a lot of parallels to as well. For sure. Um, I thought in this in this case, right, it was like as exactly my highlight density is similar to yours, front and back. But then in the middle, there were some interesting examples, like the uh, totally. discovery of oxygen, or I guess lack of discovery of oxygen. Like there was not really a clear discoverer 
of oxygen. Electricity being considered as a fluid and things like that. Radioactivity yeah, as well. Radioactivity, so, x-rays. Yeah. yeah. Newtonian physics, Galileo, like planetary motion. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Yep. So where should we start? Yeah, well, maybe let's, <laughs> we could start by talking. I mean, I think if we just start by explaining the high level concepts and then go into some of the examples, we're going to have plenty of tangents and like yeah. <laughs> ways that it got described in the book and out of the book. Cause it's nice in the sense that a lot of the core ideas are, we can explain, I think fairly quickly and people can grok them and then you know it's like okay well what what does that mean in practice right yeah because i think the the core idea of or there's a few core ideas but you know the one that is that was suggested by the intro quotation we chose is that science has not progressed through this linear path of discovery and knowledge progressively building upon the knowledge that came before it it there there might be a good analogy here with like math, right? Because math is it's very zero or one. Like yep. there aren't there aren't multiple ways to do addition, right? Like there's just addition. And once we had addition and subtraction and stuff, then we were able to figure out algebra. And then we were able to figure out like trigonometry and then calculus and like all this stuff was able to build upon itself in a very linear way. Whereas with science, we have continually gone through these processes of establishing what Kuhn calls paradigms. So these like foundations of knowledge, which then research is done within and to further explore and explain. And then that research and those explorations run into challenges or things that don't fit the paradigm. And then people start to get confused and do other experiments to try to explain what's going on. And then eventually they realize that the paradigm all of this research is being done on is fundamentally faulty in some ways and needs to be abandoned in favor of a new one. So yep. probably the, the best, uh, at least to me, the best example of this is like Newtonian versus relativistic physics, right? So like Newtonian physics, super simple, you know, fairly just like linear like gravitational, you know, masses attracting each other, right? Like everything was like fairly simple. You could like predict movements and things based on like actually like really simple formula, right? And then once, you know, what Einstein was sort of able to figure out was like, well, this starts to break down. And I don't remember what, like, I think Einstein, it was purely theoretical, right? Like he didn't have data on stuff moving really quickly because I think he proposed all of yeah, yeah. He he proposed his like relativistic view of physics where like, okay, as stuff approaches the speed of light, like shit's going to get wacky. And then we weren't able to test it until 20 or 30 years later. And then the tests ended up being like totally in line with his predictions, right? So, right. you know, he, he realized that there was a limit to what Newtonian physics could explain. And so he had to come up with an entirely new paradigm for physics, which could then like explain all these things that were not captured in the Newtonian model. So Kuhn's point is that like science does not progress linearly. It goes through these like cycles of having, you know, certain foundational truths or certain foundational uh, beliefs that the science is being done on. And then we may eventually hit a point where those foundations like crack and we have to establish new ones. And that doesn't mean that the original foundations were necessarily unscientific. They were just maybe like, incomplete or insufficient but that 
and we just needed to figure out like what was a better th- what was a better base to build our knowledge on top of. Yeah, the analogy that kept coming popping into my head when and this made I think this is going to lead us on a tangent, but let's see where it goes. Was uh, map versus territory, mm-hmm. right? And it's like the natural world is so complicated, and every theory that we put on top of it is just a map. It's a map on top of what the actual like the territory is like the real natural world, like the actual world, what's happening in in the real world. And it's not like, it's not like nature distinguishes between like quantum and Newtonian physics. Those are ways for us to understand and describe what's actually happening in real life. Those are maps, I guess, that we're putting on the territory. And that's kind of what, like he didn't, I don't know if he mentioned those terms at all, but that's the analogy that kept popping into my head is that like the paradigm is the map. And then the territory is like the phenomenon that you're trying to describe. And that like for the Newtonian versus quantum or or relativistic example, it's not that Newtonian physics was wrong. It was that this relativistic stuff was a special case that Newtonian physics could not accurately describe. So it doesn't mean that it's like unscientific or that it was wrong. It is, but it's just not a complete theory. Right. And there's, and I guess the question is like, is there a complete theory? I mean, you know, there's like that theory of everything idea. And I guess that's like the Holy grail, right. For physics to like be able to come up with one. Yeah. And he, he distinguishes between two types of science where, uh, oh, yeah. he, what he, <laughs> and I thought this was very funny because it's like, I think he's trying really hard not to be condescending, but <laughs> it yeah. kind of inherently comes off as condescending where, cause he, he calls it normal science. And he says, yeah. normal science, the activity in which most scientists inevitably spend almost all their time is predicated on the assumption that the scientific community knows what the world is like. Much of the success of the enterprise derives from the community's willingness to defend that assumption, if necessary, at considerable cost. Normal science, for example, often suppresses fundamental novelties because they are necessarily subversive of its basic commitments. And I think that my my favorite example of this is Ptolemaic versus Copernican astronomy, because under the like Ptolemaic model, Right, Earth was sort of the center of everything, and the planets and sun and the universe like revolved around the Earth. And then you, you would have all these astronomers look up at the sky, and then they would say like, "Well, like, why is some of this stuff moving backwards?" Right? Because Mercury would kind of come around, and then it would have this retrograde motion where it goes backwards, and then it goes forward again, and if it's you know going around us like that wouldn't make any sense right? like right. how could, how could it possibly go backwards if it's yeah. orbiting us and so then you know ptolemaic scientists came up with these like incredible diagrams and formula to explain these like mini circles that the planets were moving in basically like orbiting around nothing in circles as they orbited around us to explain this retrograde motion, right? So it was like, when, now that we have the Copernican model and we understand like, oh, we're just both orbiting around something, it's like, it's such a more elegant explanation. But yep. if, you don't ha- if you don't have that explanation and you're like, no, we know everything revolves around the Earth, so how could this be happening? Then you kind of have to say like, oh, well, obviously they're just like spinning in place a little bit and that's why they seem to go backwards, right? Like this is a perfect example of like, you know, science will fight very hard to abandon the current paradigm and will instead construct, you know, sometimes ridiculous explanations to maintain like our current understanding of the world. 
Yeah. And this brings in actually something I think you talked about in the medley uh, this past week too, which is like incentive structures rather than like grand Mm. conspiracies, which I actually think, I mean, it's semantics, but I actually think those things are very much related. Like you could have, it's not like a top-down conspiracy, but there's a conspiracy, conspiracy. arguably a conspiracy to maintain the existing paradigm. Right. Um, And he uses the term like puzzle solvers and puzzles, which we haven't really talked about yet. But he was saying the normal science, I guess, the term normal science is basically trying to solve puzzles, or what he calls puzzles. And the definition of a puzzle is something that you kind of know the rules around. So the example he gives is you buy a jigsaw puzzle, there's a picture on the front of the box, you know all the pieces have to fit together to form that puzzle, that, that picture. You know what that picture should be already when you start. You just have to figure out how to get the pieces in place. And in the same way, right, his idea with normal science is theory has already predicted what the results of your experiment should be. You're just running the experiment basically to confirm that. And that's what a lot of scientists, uh, I think he says like most scientists, that's your day-to-day career is right. puzzle solving. And that's to your point, he's trying not to be condescending, but that's like the closest Definitely he came to Definitely comes off as condescending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think for other sections of the book, he was not condescending, but that part he was like, yeah, pu- like the terms puzzles and puzzle solvers. Um, yeah, yeah. He brings up a lot. So but funny. it kind of yeah. makes sense though, right? It kind of makes sense. It's like, no one's going to give you a grant to like, just go mess around and be like, yeah, I'm going to hope to find a new paradigm. It's like, no, you're going to get your grant to test like this specific thing with this expected result and publish the results in this paper, like exactly. in this journal. So the incentive structures, going back to that, like the incentive structures line up for puzzle solving uh, because that's just where all the money is, right? And like that's right, where the funding right. is. And so that's, I think, part of the reason, uh, at least in my opinion, from reading this, it's like that's why these paradigm shifts are so almost rare and accidental as well. Yeah, they're... You know, he says that the really pressing problems, examples of a cure for cancer or the the design of a lasting piece are not puzzles at all because they largely because they may not have a solution. Right. Mm. So the scientific enterprise as a whole does from time to time prove useful, open up new territory, display order and (laughs) test long accepted belief. Nevertheless, the individual engaged on a normal research problem is almost never doing any one of these things. <laughs> just, like, I love that and, one. I tweeted I mean, that. To, I tweeted that. Yeah, one. yeah. And, and to his, I mean, to his credit, right? Like the, you know, how many like revolutionary physicists have there been? It, it's like fewer than ten. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. There's like, you know, call it Newton, Copernicus, Einstein, Planck, like. Heisenberg, Heisenberg. Yeah, I mean, there, it's it's a short list. It's not many. Whereas, yeah. and but like, how many physicists are there? Like, how many PhD or master's physics degrees are there? Like, there's a lot more than that. So, it you know, to his point, it's like, yeah, most most of science is just like filling in the gaps in the current paradigm uh, versus you know establishing a new one. Questions I always like to, and I remember thinking this when I read it in college too, is like. What are the things in science today that feel like they might be invented to like ex- to explain away the like anomalies in our observations within the current paradigm, right? Like like dark I'm sure matter. there's stuff in nutrition. I'm I'm sure well, there's stuff in nutrition for this. 
Well, I was thinking like even in physics too, right? Like dark matter and dark energy, where it's basically like, like it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah, it's like well, okay, so a lot of our observations around what actually happens with gravity don't fit our models, so we're just gonna invent this like invisible mass that we can't see or explain that is also exerting gravitational force, and like that's why these things are happening. And it's like okay, like that that's plausible or like our idea of gravity is just like still messed up and like yeah needs redefining right that actually i mean you're totally right that feels very similar and of course i'm talking out my ass again but that's yeah, me fine. too not a physicist um, philosophy maybe yeah but but. <laughs> but yeah i think like from that sounds super similar actually to the mercury uh yeah motion it's like how is this not retrograde about. motion right like yeah. how is this not something we're inventing to fit our current paradigm instead of challenging it uh, yeah, and so much of this is not observational, too, because it's like they're computer models in most cases. Right. And I think that's where this book becomes very useful is the paradigm puzzle analogy of knowledge and like curiosity and exploration is very helpful beyond just science. Oh, yeah. Because he, he has this really good line here. Let me see. When paradigms enter, as they must into a debate about paradigm choice, their role is necessarily circular. Each group uses its own paradigm to argue in that paradigm's defense. And I think this is true of, kind of so many debates, political, scientific, or otherwise, where it's basically impossible to have an actual conversation about like what is seemingly being conversed about because the yeah. the underlying foundations or the underlying paradigms for each side's positions are so significantly different that the the surface level thing that's being argued can't even really be uh like you know both sides are completely correct in the scope of their own foundational paradigms right right like with the baseline assumptions that each side is making and so you would need I think I forget who the two people were, but there were two Rogan episodes recently about climate. And one scientist was like, uh, I mean, they're both climate scientists, but one was sort of very pro the like uh, mainstream climate change narrative. And the other was not so pro like basically he said, he said there's a lot of flaws in the model. I forget his name, but he, uh, he wanted to do a debate with the other guy. And then the other guy didn't. And his reason was, um, and we can find the clip and put it in the show notes, but the other guy's reason was like, it's going to take us so long to lay out what the assumptions each of us are making. Right. And so Joe, to his credit, I mean, he said, we should just lay those out ahead of time, like put them in a document and like you come in knowing the other side's assumptions and he comes in knowing your assumptions and we could do it. Uh, but the guy still didn't want to do it. That would have been a good episode, though. That's too bad. That would be a good episode. Yeah. And we, we don't get enough of those conversations, right? No, I don't know of any place where those kinds of conversations are happening because it's certainly not politics. And like you would think no. these sort of online type conversations, not online as in social media, but online as in like a podcast could be where these types of discussions could happen. Yeah. Um, especially someone like him who's, you know, he's, his episodes are always like three hours long. You could get into a ton of detail. Yeah, and I feel like we have we have enough other third rails now that we can actually like maybe have a productive conversation about climate stuff. <laughs> like, yeah, like okay, people are so angry about these other things. They're like, well, now we can actually talk <laughs> about some of the climate things, right? Uh, <laughs> we'll I mean, I, we'll circle back been, those other conversations later. I've always thought that, like, uh, and this is, I think, I mean, anybody who 
is searching for truth in any way, shape, or form, I feel like should agree with this, but like there should never be anything wrong with asking the question. Like, no, no. So why, like, why does, like, why do we believe this? Right. And then somebody right. should be able to lay it out for you in a way with like, here's why we think this, here's the assumptions that are underlying that. And then if you want to challenge that, you can find something wrong with one of the assumptions. That's totally legitimate. If you have some legitimate gripe with one of the assumptions, that's how you have a productive debate about some of these yeah. things. But, but if you just start shouting at each other, like it doesn't, it doesn't get anywhere. And that just forces people to only listen to their own side. Like exactly turns into yeah echo chambers. That's why I, I tweeted a joke about this book, which I, nobody seems to think was very funny. So I deleted it. Uh, <laughs> I, but, oh, you deleted it? I got it. Yeah. I was like, I got, uh, all right. I got like three or four like annoyed comments and no likes. I saw I like, that. All right, I, I'm, I'm trying too hard to shit post about this. Uh, but like, I, you know, I, I think this book is actually. Better. <laughs> your posts have gotten better. I got to give you credit. It's been, they've been great. You, you have to <laughs> like your, uh, your social security and like Medicare. Oh my God. was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> we have to link to that. We have to link you have, to that. You have to occasionally notes. tweet really stupid stuff so people don't like, you know, think that you're super serious person all the time. <laughs> it also, it also helps weed out the like very easily triggered followers who might like build up and then, you know, yep. like, try to cancel you in mass later i have anyway. i have way fewer way fewer followers than you and i do the same thing i'll i'll tweet like something vaguely controversial anytime my follower account like goes up by 50 or something i'm just like okay yeah. i'm gonna tweet this i'm gonna lose a few followers that they're the ones i don't want hanging around here anyway so i i've uh, had a few works. friends who like you know got massive followings on twitter like really quickly by following, you know, a very specific formula and really yep. not deviating from the formula. And in in all the cases that I'm thinking of, they then tweeted something like mildly controversial and just got like absolutely, you know, destroyed for it because, you know, they had like stuck to this very manicured formula for so long that, yep. you know, the minute they said something a little bit out of line with it, it was like, you know, awful. So it's worth, yeah, it's worth doing that that manicuring. But no, what I was going to say is, you know, what I think this book does such a great job of is explaining how science is this ever-evolving process that requires challenging the inherent assumptions and being able to ask, like, you know, okay, is this is this something that's just being researched to confirm the existing paradigm, right? Or is this kind of like novel research and like which paradigm is this trying to confirm, right? Or like, you know, what idea set is it feeding into, right? And that's kind of like the, to the climate discussion, right? Like, obviously, this is not like an open and shut, like case, right? Like nothing, nothing in science is, right? And the idea that, oh, if you, and it's like people people like to take it from zero to one. It's like if you want to question some of the climate science stuff at all, then oh, well, you're a climate change denier, right? Like you, right. you don't believe you don't you don't believe in science. You know, it's like well, no, actually, like asking a question is the scientific thing to do. Like just like blanket believing, you know, whatever you're told by the government is like the unscientific thing. Galileo uh, did not trust the science, so no, no, it's like, and that's I think that that I or and that that point about a lot of science is done to confirm the paradigm is really important too because it's like okay, you're you know we'll stick with the climate example, right? It's like how much of the climate science research that was done and that is pointed to now was done in the last twenty years to confirm the like oh the world is going to like be underwater 
in 10, 20 years paradigm, right? Because if you're like a, if you're an environmental scientist who graduated college in, you know, 2004 and you were like really frustrated with how Bush was treating like environmentalism and you want like, you know, more stuff to convince the world to take this seriously, then you're going to do a lot of research to show how big of a problem it is, but you're not going to probably do as much research to challenge, you know, the underlying paradigm of like, well, you know, how big of a problem is this, right? Like how soon is it actually going to be a problem? And like all of those aspects. And so it's it's kind of like explaining how, you know, even like more more research done on a topic does not necessarily make that topic more accurate, right? Or like make yeah. that paradigm more accurate. Uh, and like being able to suss that out and also recognize that like we can have these conflicting paradigms, conflicting ideas. And like from them, we try to get an accurate, view of the world but like nothing is perfect and like scientists are just people too with their own biases and things that and incentives they're trying to follow yeah this kind of reminds me of the turkey problem too that taleb talks about right where like you could have a thousand experiments kind of confirming or maybe it's more like black swan i guess or no it's not black swan it's turkey problem it's let's say you have a thousand experiments confirming one thing and then you have one experiment that is replicable that proves something else, well, then, you know, you might actually have a paradigm shift kind of thing on your hands. Right. And yeah, it's just like it, just cause you say, Oh, like this is the thing I'd never, uh, two things actually that I don't like about a lot of these public science debates, whether it's s- climate vaccines, whatever, where it says like most scientists agree, like that literally doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It literally doesn't mean anything. Cause that's not how sci- like science doesn't work based on most scientists or not most scientists. It's not a majority rules situation. No, unless there's additional research, right? Like if there's one paper and, you know, most scientists are like, oh yeah, that paper's good. Like that doesn't, that doesn't make it more legitimate (laughs) as a piece of research, right? Yep. Yeah. So that's, I mean, so that's like, you know, one thing. And then, and then the other is just like not being able to, to publicly challenge assumptions. Cause I think like, that was like so that weird. Part, like, when did yeah, that it just becomes become a thing? Yeah, I think it's, it's like partially been? tied to this lack of religion. This is like a much deeper discussion. I think yeah. like, there's this like religious belief in in science in general, and I don't know if the words belief and science should ever be together because they are kind of opposites in many well, ways, I, right? Like, I, I actually disagree. I because I think science is fundamentally about belief. And the mistake I guess believing is in the method. That, There's believing in the method. Yeah, but it's not about, about believing. It's not about believing in individuals. Like if just because somebody has a title of I'm a scientist and I'm telling you this, like you have to believe what I'm telling you. Well, with that, I'm saying that is still an act of faith, right? And it's not actually that far away from like a faith in God or a faith in. That's like, what I'm saying. I agree. With you. Okay. Okay. I no, think no, yeah, I agree agreeing. with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. Cool. That's 100% what I'm saying. Yeah. That those are relatively the same thing. Cause if you don't know right. the underlying assumptions or the underlying basis for that claim, yeah, then you're kind of doing the same thing as believing in like a book or a priest or somebody like that. Exactly. The, the mistake Probably not is even thinking that it's more the priest. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The, the mistake is thinking like, oh, well, if somebody has a doctor title and works at the FDA or EPA or whatever, then like they must be telling the truth. And like, then I, I should just listen to them or whatever. Right. Like that's, that's sort of like the, the unscientific approach to it. That's what I'm saying. That's exactly yeah, what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's like, I, there's this problem too of science and politics, right? Where science has kind of become politified and, 
uh, maybe that started with climate change stuff, right? Because climate climate change was actually a, it was a manufactured term by the Bush administration to make people less worried about global warming. They they literally rebranded global warming as climate I didn't change. Even know that. Wow. Yeah, which is it's funny that climate change is the main phrase we use now because they invented it to make people feel like oh this is just like weather right it's just like the seasons you know mm. the climate just changes right it just it just happens right like this is what climate does <laughs> the the world the world isn't warming like that's scary right global warming ooh but climate change eh, normal cool right yeah and, it happens every season that's and it worked feel. yeah yeah and it, it worked really well and so it's kind of funny that we use that term now uh, i guess it, it ended up accidentally being prophetic because it wasn't necessarily global warming it was like temperature right extremism right like we both we both get higher highs and lower lows now yeah uh, like but there was this exactly than, that i yeah. think that like because al gore was such a like you know he's kind of a nerd and you know bush was a very like you know warrior like mission accomplished <laughs> we got him uh yeah B- bush warrior al gore magician <laughs> uh <laughs> <laughs> that's a, a a reference to our previous episode yeah exactly warrior, magician lover and then that, obviously that Joe Biden's the lover, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and then that I think that election felt so you know robbed for a lot of mm. Democrats, and then the whole like climate change stuff got worse during Bush's era, and they wanted to downplay it. And like Cheney was obviously involved in um, what was the oil company. Uh, uh Halliburton, right? Halliburton, right? Like was that the, the, just I like, think they're annoying. Yeah, company. Halliburton, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Uh so then there was, there was like all those factors. Then it was like, oh, you know, like liberals believe in climate change and science and like Republicans don't care and want to like destroy the earth. And so then it, I, I feel like from there it became this thing of oh well if you're like it, it, like science became a Democrat thing and then like I think Democrats manufactured this idea that like, oh, if you question like quote unquote mainstream science, then you're like a Republican or like a bad person or an idiot or whatever. Uh, And then it really, I mean, it got worse with like the autism vaccine guy and then the like, and then then there's the whole like COVID vaccine stuff, which is its own like beast because (laughs) it it was, it was a year of like the Democrats saying like, Oh, well we're not going to trust the Trump vaccine. And then like completely (laughs) switching around and saying like, if you don't get the COVID vaccine, you don't believe in science. Right. So (laughs) the whole is very confusing. (laughs) Yeah. This, the whole strategy of kicking people out for not, for asking questions actually is I think a really stupid, it's also just a really stupid political strategy because like, yeah, Anybody, I mean, it's very reasonable to have questions about anything. I mean, if you like, like, I don't understand how you walk through the day, go through your whole day without having, like, I just don't know what that would be like, like what that yeah. life experience would be. I mean, it's religion, I've, right? Like that, we, we sort of replaced religion with politics, I think. But I wonder, did it start with like in the 2000s? Because I mean, like, mm-hmm. I wonder, was this debate there for like banning smoking in indoor places or something like was there this yeah, whole I like I can't imagine because that was science based, right? I mean, it was yeah. based on medical advice, I guess. And yeah, and it, was it's that weird politicized. I don't know. Like, I don't think so. Right? And yeah, so like, why would that when was that? Not by be... the way, when was that? I'm going to Google that right now. Right? It's like why? Uh, why do some of these things matter and some of them don't? 
yeah what makes them i guess what makes them in the category of like if you're not with us you're against us kind of thing yeah you know is it like a is it a perceived negative externalities thing right like i i think the i think the internal versus external like locus of control and like who who is suffering kind of drives a lot of these debates right like if, if we're talking about being unable to argue things because of like differing paradigms like abortion's probably the best example of that yeah because yep. like you you actually can't have that debate really since you know you have one group whose paradigm is like individual choice is more important than questions of like when life begins. You have another group whose paradigm is like life obviously begins when like life begins. And so, or like when, you know, conception happens. And so like, it's not an individual choice thing. Right. And like you, the, the, the name or the terms like pro choice and pro life are like meant to, denounce the opposing paradigm right right but at the end of the day like they're both fundamental paradigms which like can't really be like uh falsified it's probably the right word i mean right? they have like different you, underlying assumptions completely exactly underlying assumptions yeah and so it's so ultimately you can't even like talk a, about it no you really can't uh and i think a lot of things come back to that right like it, with some of the climate change stuff too it's like some people really think that it's a massive negative externality for you to be like driving your car and you know doing all these different things then you have other people who think like it's it's not maybe or like you know this is i'm actually not really sure what the anti-like climate change argument is like this it's one that i have a hard time like i i i can definitely empathize with the it's going slower than we think or it might not be as bad as like is being I think the- presented but I, I think the other side, the other side, at least, uh, I mean, there are, there's, all, there, there are some that are like, it's Oh, it's just not happening or, Oh, it's just yes. natural. And so like that, it's a that one I think is pretty undefensible. Like, but I think the, I think the, the, the like logical counterpoint is more about trade-offs, which I think yeah, yeah. is similar to the vaccine debate. I think too, it's just like, I mean, it, it's similar, right? It's like, we don't, we don't think we get so religious about these things. We think it's like binary, but it's right. basically never binary. It's always a matter of like, like if we do this this way, this is the good that comes out of it, and this are, these are like all the bad things that happen from it. And then we just have to make the decision: like, does the good outweigh the bad? Like, is it acceptable? Is that like the, because that is kind of how any sort of national level decision uh, yeah. has to be debated? Because like, I mean, that's just how it is. Like with vaccines, I mean, they made they definitely brushed aside any concerns about side effects and potential deaths that could happen. But in like a sane, logical, open debate world, and maybe this is what happened behind closed doors and they made this decision, was like, it's going to save more lives than it's going to affect negatively. And that's worth it. And so whatever messaging we have to do to get people to do this, it's all worth it. Because, because, and nobody feel like this is the other thing about humans, right? Like we never feel we are the bad guy. So I assume yeah, behind yeah, those doors, the like other everybody guy. is. Yeah. yeah, I assume that like in their mind, it's like very, very much like we're doing this because it's going to save more lives than it's gonna, uh, it's gonna end. I tweeted something a few days ago, which I was kind of thinking about this same thing when I was reading the book. Uh, that's what led to this tweet. Is like I, I was calling them rationalists, but like. I said, if a rationalist thinks they can save 10,000 lives by killing 3,000 people, they'll do it and think they're a hero. And 
The problem is actually with that is that if they were wrong in their assumptions and they weren't actually going to save 10,000 lives is where things get really tricky. Yeah. And and I think in this example too, it like to me, the problem was always like pretending there was no trade-off, right? Yeah. That's what I mean. For all of these things, right? Like in your example, right? Like if, you know, if you say like, okay, you know, we're going to like make this choice and you know, they're there is no trade-off. It's a free lunch, right? It's that's like, what the, that's what they did. That's obviously yeah. not true. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's impossible. Right. Well, and that's where I think a lot of the like increasing skepticism is justified. Right. Is like, if, if we had a government who was like very honest about the trade-offs of things, like that would be awesome. Like I would trust them a lot more. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's lying about trade-offs or pretending there are no trade-offs where it's like, well, now I can't really like believe a lot of what you're saying because right you sort of like already showed your hand, right? Like the, you know, I think the, the best example was the whole like saying that masks don't work when they're like, so obviously do, right? It's like, it's like, why the fuck do doctors wear them in hospitals then, right? Like, like we know this, like we had, we had plenty of data, right? It was just like a total bold faced lie. And then to come back later and be like, oh, well, you know, it was a noble lie because we like needed to conserve, like just, just say like, just, you know, it would have been so much easier, at least to me, right? Like, and, you know, this is maybe I'm being unfair and I'd be curious to hear the other side of this, right? Like to me, it seems like the answer is to say something like, Hey, you know, they work, but like we desperately need them in hospitals. Like, please, please like, don't go buy them, stay home. Right. Like just like chill for a couple of weeks while we figure out like the logistics and we're like putting a bunch of money towards this. Right. Like we're, we're going to figure this out. We just need everyone to chill for two weeks. I, I don't know why that would have been so hard. Right. And it kind of goes well, back to this. <laughs> I think you, I, I, uh, I want to live in that world that you just described where that. Yeah. Would maybe I'm being too generous. Yeah. I, I do think we do live in like a free for all, uh, society though. So like, we definitely don't have like, it's not Japan, I guess, where you could say something yeah. like that. And I feel like it would work. I don't know. I feel like you could have publicly said that people have been like, those people are suckers. I'm getting all uh, the most, masks. <laughs> most people, most people, like I, you know, I, I think there's like enough assholes. I feel like who would have taken advantage of that. Maybe I, I, I can sell them on eBay. I was honestly impressed by how adherent people were to stay home orders for at least That's the first too. yeah three six months. I think the whatever. first couple weeks. I, I was gonna yeah. say the first few weeks was pretty good. Then I think and I think it got a little. I think too like you know because. Americans respond pretty well to like social pressure, probably more than government pressure. And, you know, if I were like running the, what's it called? Ministry of information. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Then it would be like, all right, how do we, how do we make it so that there are like social consequences to being outside of the house and to being outside of the house, like wearing a mask for these next like two to three weeks. Right. Like, you know, anybody who, who has one is stealing them from hospitals basically. Right. Like, you know, you, you could put That's that message point. out yeah. and like the, the, the social powers, I think, would have like enforced that pretty quickly. But yeah, I, don't know, I could see that like expose like people would expose people on social media. And yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's like, you know, going back to the climate thing, I think that's where they some of that stuff got into trouble where these, you know, models of like, you know, New York or Florida being underwater in 2020. And now people look around and they're like, everything seems fine. Right. So, you know, <laughs> like, also, why, why should we believe there, you now? And it's like, well, there's also, there, the, there, there's also that dichotomy of like the people who push a lot of these things, not 
backing it up with their actions. So like I know uh, the Obamas after jets. their <laughs> well, not even that. Not, I mean that is also true. That is also true. That's another gripe of mine. But I guess on a percentage basis, it's not a huge deal. The no, the thing I was going to say is that when the Obamas left uh, the White House, they bought uh, a house near the water in Martha's Vineyard, mm. and it's like. Well, if that's going to be underwater, like, why are you buying this, like, multi-million dollar mansion right near the water if you really believe that, right? Like, if you actually believe that. And so then that makes, like, the average person, I think, at least in my opinion, think, like, maybe we're not seeing the right model. Like, maybe there's a model that's like, yeah, this is going to happen, but it's, like, 100 years out. So you're going to be long dead by then. So don't worry about it. But, like... And then maybe are they just telling you stuff for like the greater good kind of thing, like where they're saying, well, we can slow it down if like everybody does this. So to get them to do that, we have to make them believe this is a more pressing issue or or that you have more control over it than you might actually have. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, these are all like, but this, this is just like the trust thing, right? That I think like by not being honest to your point, like you make people imagine reasons like what I just said could be completely imagined. Like it yeah. might be he actually knows that this is going to be underwater and he's like, you know what? I'm going to enjoy this for 10 years before it goes underwater. <laughs> <laughs> it could be, right? Like well, I'm making up my reasoning that maybe there's another model that we don't have access to. Well, and going back to like dictator's handbook, right? Most of these politicians are thinking on two to four year time scales. So it, it actually behooves you to make the problems seem more urgent, worse, and more pressing than they might otherwise be because you can use that to retain power and like retain influence. You know, you, and you probably your won't, supporters. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you probably yeah. won't be around to, you know, in 10, 20 years, whatever, when people are like, hey, like they, they might have exaggerated this a little bit. You know, you'll be chilling <laughs> somewhere in your, yeah. in your Florida beach house that you, you drove down the real estate price of. Uh, it's just, you know, it's <laughs> just for clarity. Like, the deal life, I'd be like, well, I won't speak for you. I am very, you know, on the, the climate change train. I just think it's a good example of like stuff probably. Well, I, and I, I wouldn't even we say did a book exaggerated. On it. We did, yeah, we actually we did, did a book really, on it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Th- that was actually a really good episode. Uh, Merchants of Doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think yeah. about that book a lot, actually. Me too. Uh, <laughs> but it's like, and I don't even know if exaggerated is the right word because the, the models back then might have predicted that things would like go a lot worse than they did. And like the models could have underestimated the Earth's natural ability to adapt or something like that, right? Like, you know, going back to Kuhn, there's more variables than you know, necessarily. Exactly. Kind of like limited paradigm, right? It's the same thing with all those models about the world running out of oil, where it, it turns out that as oil gets more expensive, there are so many more ways we can pull oil out of the ground and we're really good at it. And it doesn't take us that long to like spin up new ones. So it's like, well, you know, we're, we're actually, I think I, I saw something that we're actually finding oil faster than we're using it. Yeah, so. we're not even at we're not even close to peak. I think for uh, well, we might be peak usage is a different thing, but in terms of peak yeah. supply, like I don't think we're anywhere close. Yeah, the, the, the I think is we not did negative. that book. We did another book, uh, Energy and Civilization. Right? Oh yeah, where we talked oh. about a lot of this too. Yep. Oh yeah, talk, talk about. Yeah, I think dense. Science I think it kind of goes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it kind of goes back to like just. I mean, t- going back to the book, right? With these paradigms, it's like. I think where scientists get in scientists and maybe like politicians probably get into trouble is when they speak of science as being this like definitive, like this is how it is kind of thing. And not this like ever evolving, like constantly changing exploration body of knowledge. Yeah. Exploration. Yeah. Yeah. I just wish we could like talk about that a little more maturely, but on the other hand, 
I don't know if you have like the base knowledge in the citizens to really talk about this in like an educated way. I think there's a generational divide or something here too, where I feel like for our parents' generation, there was a bit more of a blanket trust in like the scientists and, you know, and like to a lesser extent, the government and like, you know, their researchers and like making the world a better place, you know, and, you know, I came from one end of the like military science, right? Like, you know, we created the atom bomb and saved the world from the Japanese or whatever. And then there was like this element of like, well, we, you know, invented all these incredible medicines in the 1900s and like cured all these diseases. And we like, you know, science did all these amazing things. And I feel like it was, you know, pretty up only for the 1900s with science, right? Where, and because there were so many incredible inventions and because it was improving lives in so many ways with like curing diseases and and stuff like that, it started to get applied to other things, right? Where it was like, well, you know, how can we use science to like improve the food that we eat? How can we use science to like control our bodies, to control our environment, to like do all these other things? And now our generation is like starting to suffer the consequences of some of those explorations, right? Where we're realizing like, oh, all of that shit you did with food made things way worse, right? <laughs> like y- you basically just destroyed the health of the you know ensuing generations with all of this like fake food you came up with because you were like so excited about science, right? <laughs> and, you know, I think... Yeah, I won't be surprised if we see similar stuff around like hormonal birth control and some of these other like, you know, consistent injections of like chemicals and whatnot into our bodies, right? Like cosmetics, shampoos, like everything we know now about like what plastics are doing to our bodies, you know, all the stuff that's like gotten in the water supply. And it's like, okay, like this, you know, pure, like let's push forward as hard as possible on like sciencing everything was like kind of a mistake. And so now we need to like think really carefully about is science going to make this thing better or are we just like looking for random shit to throw science at? And I feel like that's a fairly new idea. And I think it goes, it can sometimes go down these like more extreme paths, right? Where like you, you end up with the like, Oh, vaccines cause autism. And it's like, okay, that's like not good science, (laughs) right? Like it's, it's published science, right? Like it's in a journal, but it's, it's not, you know, like it's, it's bad science. Uh, but then the idea that like you can't question any of this stuff, right? Like that we've we've kind of like lost the in-between of it's yeah. like you either think that like all science is good or you think that like scientists are evil and trying to like, you know, take over the world. And it's like neither of those are true. We need to like right. get back <laughs> yeah. to the middle here. <laughs> like, you know, be able to like honestly talk about this shit. Yep. I think the other thing too is like people also kind of look for they they find what they're looking for so there was this section um i think i found it there was like the whole thing about the playing card experiment that he talked about or like oh, if you're i didn't pull any highlights card. from that yeah go ahead okay yeah so so actually it made me think of a different experiment that's much more well known uh and or maybe maybe it's more well known now because it's more it's a newer one but have you ever heard of the um that dancing gorilla Oh yeah. That's such a good one. Yeah. 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 So it's the same. It was like the same idea basically. It's like, and so just for anyone listening, like the idea is, um, the idea is that like, if you're busy looking for something, it's very hard to see something else, even if it's right in front of you. So if you're, you know, in front of a computer, go to YouTube and like just search dancing gorilla experiment and do the experiment. 
basically what you're going to find is they, they ask you to, so go do it, pause this, go do it, come back. So they had you count like the number of passes that the players were making to each other uh, of the basketball. And most people do not see the dancing gorilla who goes right across the, the screen. It's like just a guy in a gorilla suit going right across the screen. Most people, I didn't see it the first time I did it. No. Uh, and it's just and anybody, it's just the anybody way the who human says they works. did, I feel like is lying or like they had already <laughs> yeah. seen it before. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that. <laughs> yeah. The, well, um, he, he did have yeah. this great line that I loved where he says, uh, when paradigms change, the world itself changes with them. Led by a new paradigm, scientists adopt new instruments and look in new places. Even more important, during revolutions, scientists see new and different things when looking with familiar instruments in places they have looked before. And then a little bit lower down, he says, what were ducks in the scientist's world before the revolution are rabbits afterwards. If you've seen that that visual yeah. thing where it yep. looks like a duck or a rabbit, depending on how you look at it, it's just such a perfect... It's a perfect line to explain this concept of you know, both things can be true in their own way, depending on what set of values and what foundation you look at the data set from. And yep. I, I just find that like thinking about problems, both in science, philosophy, life, whatever, from that lens is so helpful because it like in particular, it's like nobody's crazy, right? Like very few people are actually like crazy because of what they believe in or what they like say they believe in or things like that. They just have like different foundations, right? Like they see a duck when you see a rabbit and like the the rabbit seer or the duck seer isn't like broken or stupid, right? It's just different background, different foundations. And it's hard to accept that sometimes, but kind of a powerful paradigm in of itself to hold on to. So sometimes the highest signal thing that you can actually find is someone you know who is not crazy for sure, that you know for sure that they're not crazy, but they say something that you're like, oh, that's that sounds crazy to me. Yeah. Like to me, that's super high signal usually where I'm like, I need to go learn more about this or like at least click on whatever it is they're posting because it's like to me, this sounds nuts, but I know this guy is really smart or this girl is really smart. Like I need to understand this a little bit more. Totally. Um, Cause you're right. Like a lot of people who have different beliefs, it doesn't mean they're crazy. They're just, you're, they're looking at it with a different set of values where I was going with that dancing gorilla thing was, you know, when we look at like, so when you're looking at something that's happening in the real world, if you, if you go into it with a set of beliefs, you might like miss completely the other stuff happening. So like, for example, the, the like vaccine autism thing that you mentioned, if I go into looking at childhood defects or like autism or anything like that, with the lens that like all scientists are evil, they're trying to take over the world, they're bad. I'm going to see everything as like a function of that. Yeah. Right. And I might miss the like beauty of it or that the fact that tons of lives are actually probably saved from this. Right. And so that's like kind of number one. And the same thing is probably true on the, the climate change thing. Right. If you like have go in with a complete set of beliefs that yes, this is happening. Anyone who questions this is like a denier, deserves to be like ostracized from society, then anything that doesn't confirm the data that you were like, not even anything that doesn't confirm, you wouldn't look for anything that doesn't confirm the data. And if there is something that doesn't confirm, then you're like, oh, there must be something wrong with the person who did that research. Not, not the fact that the research was not aligning with your pre-existing beliefs. Totally. Do you want to hear my semi-crazy, but also maybe not crazy, better explanation for the vaccine autism concern? Yes, I'd love it. So this is I, going to be a great tangent. 
I, I, I only thought about this because of like when we started getting our daughter vaccinated and you, you start doing it around the like three to four month mark. Like, I think that that's when you usually go in for the first ones. So yeah. It's like two to three months, like three months, which is also like very often around the time babies switch from breast milk to formula. So I know where you're going with this. <laughs> if, if, if parents are observing like significant behavioral or like health changes around the time they're like, you know, cause like that, the theory didn't come from nowhere, right? Like parents were observing something and then they blamed it on these like early vaccinations. But I'd be curious to see like, you know, what types, you know, if, if those babies were also being put on formula and like to what extent that is driving some of these changes. Cause we know like we have decent evidence that a lot of like the symptoms of autism can be mitigated or completely like removed by dietary changes. Right. And same thing with a lot of like some of the other stuff that these groups attribute to like early childhood vaccines. So, you know, to what extent is it just like another environmental, like dietary pollutant that's like causing these like unexpected behavioral changes. It's like, this isn't something that I have like done research on or like, you know, feel particularly strongly about, but it seems like a much better explanation. And I mean, the formula ingredients are garbage. They're so bad. Yeah. It it, like should be criminal. There's one uh, brand that a friend of a friend uh, works for, which actually seemed pretty good. Just like the first one that I've seen that I'm like, oh, yeah, that actually looks like decent ingredients. There, uh, there are a couple Bobby. startups. Yeah, yeah. There are a couple startups who are trying one. to do a better yeah. job of it now. Is Bobby the one that uses coconut oil? Uh, Let's see. I just let's went see. to the website. No, it looks like it's I'm dairy. Oh, it's dairy-based. Interesting. Oh, no, it is coconut oil. You're right. Yep. It's coconut oil? It is yeah, coconut okay. oil. Yep. But yeah, but it's like no corn syrup, no filler, no pesticides, no antibiotics. No exactly. Palm yeah. oil. Yeah. Yep. Um, coconut oil. Way in casein. Right? But you're right. Like the ones that everybody uses are not good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's mostly corn syrup and seed oil. <laughs> I feel like I would start having problems if you just fed me a diet of that now. <laughs> you oh, know yeah. What I mean? <laughs> Most people like, would. Right? Yeah. So I think it's uh, certainly a much better explanation. Um, all right. Where do we get you like the funding to... Uh, to get that out there like i feel like these these startups would love that right if that if that came out to be true like they would i'm sure they would be able to sell a lot more even than they, they i mean talk do. talk about a like home run right it's like we're going to dramatically improve you know childhood health and future health outcomes and we're going to like you know undo a lot of this like you know smallpox and etc vaccine hesitancy like total grand slam in my opinion yeah but that everyone should be able to get behind the, you know, except the, uh, the seed oil companies, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> except general mills. <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, that's yeah. like that. The seed oil thing is actually interesting. Cause I, that's one of the things where like last year, I feel like it became a little bit more mainstream, Dude, which I, I had not thought too much about. I'm worried uh, that it's like jumping that. the shark now. I feel like I agree. I was, that's where I was going. That's exactly where I was going. It's gotten like too. Uh, people are people are having too much fun with it, and like I, I almost I almost have a hard time taking myself seriously when I talk about it now because there's all these Twitter accounts <laughs> that are like. But the annoying thing is like it's like a lot of it does check. Like a lot of the criticisms do check out, and so if there if there were like a dietary thing to be this ridiculous about, it's probably that. But it has definitely like jumped the shark a little bit. Yeah, but to your point about like the vaccines versus um versus like formula, it's kind of similar in the sense that like it solves a lot of the like questions that are 
people who do like carnivore say they get benefit from it. People yeah. who are vegans say they get benefit from it. People who go paleo get benefit from it. And well, you're and like, we've we've eaten bread, sugar, fat, yep. like everything in our diet for pretty much all of like Fruit, agricultural histories. The only thing that we have started eating in large quantities since the obesity epidemic began is processed seed oils. It's literally the only significant dietary change. No change in meat consumption, no like red meat versus white meat, no like fruits, dairy, carbs, fats, whatever. Like none of that stuff has changed in a meaningful way, but the seed oil consumption has like four or five X as a percentage of daily calories. Like it, if you just kind of like lay all those charts on top of each other, it just seems so obvious as the source of like a lot of these things. I mean, unless, unless like getting fat and sick causes seed oil consumption, but I kind of, I kind of doubt that's the arrow of causality. <laughs> yeah. But I guess also like the numbers don't really work out when people say, Oh, it's just cause we all like sit all day. Like the numbers don't work out to gain that amount of weight. Uh, no. versus yeah. It's that's like, it's like, People were pretty sedentary for like a lot of the 18, yeah. 1800s, right? And yep. I mean, and, and also you just look at like other countries too, where it's not quite as prevalent in their diet. We don't have the same outcomes, but is it as prevalent in Europe or is it not like not as not, not, not like it is here? But I think there's just a bit more of a focus on like local natural ingredients, right? In a lot of Europe. I mean, places where you have like a higher or like a more westernized American diet. Sure, but I don't think it's consumed anywhere like it is in the U.S. Maybe one of our most loved exports. I think maybe like some develop or like (laughs) developing is not even the right word, but like lower income countries. I think it's really high too. But might be Mexico. I think I I think Mexico has a really high obesity rate as well. They they have an insane amount of sugar consumption too. It's part of it. There's just sugar in everything. Um, Yeah, I'm just looking this up right now. Yeah, Mexico is. Mexico passed the U.S. as the most obese country in the world. Wow. That's wild. 39.7% of people are overweight, 29.9% obese. Jeez. Is that inclusive or separate? Oh, so is it like question. 30% are obese, 40% are overweight, and the remaining 30% are neither? It's probably that. It's got to be that. It's probably that. Yeah, because I know in America more than fifty percent are overweight. It's probably that then. Yeah, yeah. it's got to be that. This Wikipedia page is not like uh, there's nothing that breaks then. it down like in like a pie chart or something. Oh no, it is additional. Yep, those are separate. Yeah. Obese and overweight are separate. Whew. You've seen the like what the fuck happened in 1971, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, it's like <laughs> uh, it it I, I, like I I hate playing into the like silly you know crypto narratives. But the two biggest things from the early 1970s are like, we got off the gold standard and we started eating seed oils. <laughs> so, Are those connected? Did we start I, eating seed they, oils? They, they should the be, standard? I guess, right? We, we, need, we need Bitcoin and real food and then like the world's <laughs> problems are solved. <laughs> well, actually, that brings up like one thing I definitely wanted to talk about during the episode or like get uh, go on some kind of tangent related to is like this paradigm shifts aren't just in science like we talked about. Yeah. Yeah, paradigm shifts for technology, for example, right? You obviously, I would say the personal computer was a big one. Mobile devices was a big one. Obviously, the internet was a massive one. Apps, yeah. Um, apps. I I would say crypto is definitely another one. Well, uh, I think that's why the the yeah. Web three b- branding is so smart because it's like, yep. oh, this is just like the next paradigm in web evolution. Yep. 
right? Where, but like, also the thing that's really interesting about that too is like as you look at the new projects that come up, I actually also see the puzzle solving analogy applying here. Where I mean, it was kind of true for like Web two also, right? It's like once you had these mobile phones in your hand. Then it was like, what can we do around the param- like around these rules of like mobile phones? Like, oh, we don't have to use a map. We can use we can create a map app that knows where you are and like gives you directions. Yeah. Like we don't have to call a number to get a taxi. Like we could just have a network of cars where we know like where those cars are and where you are and 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 uh, a marketplace that connects the two. Like that's like web two stuff. Web three, like you're starting to see that too. It's like, well, now that we have this magic internet money capability like how do we actually build stuff or like what can we build around that um, the, the one so, big yeah. home run that already exists is single sign-on you know con- yeah. connecting to applications using metamask or rainbow or whatever your preferred wallet is is just an order of magnitude better than having an email and password for everything like yep. it's so much nicer and you just bring all of your own data with you from app to app you like don't have to, you know, do like email confirmation and all of this stuff. They can't inherently like spam you. Uh, they yep. get no personal data about you than, you know, what you want to supply. Like, and, you know, you just have this one login that you use everywhere. Like, it's so much better. Like, Facebook tried to do this. Google tried to do this. Everybody tried to be like the single sign on solution for Web2. And nobody like really nailed it. They, they did kind of good in their own ways. Like people were using Facebook for a while and then got kind of like weird about it. Yep. And I'll, I'll use Google for some things. I'll use like GitHub for, you know, coding stuff, but you know, MetaMask is just like, boom, connected, done. Right. Like so easy. Uh, so I, I think that'll be, some that's more true. Stuff like that, that is, that is a really, really useful uh, application. And I hope it gets like adopted beyond just like crypto applications too. Like that would be like, when I say crypto, like obviously it'd still be Web three uh, if it uses MetaMask, but like things that aren't necessarily like currency related. I mean, like NFT yeah. projects are kind of similar to this. But, I mean, I yeah. I've thought about this for media stuff too, right? Like for my blog, it would be very easy to have a members only section that's NFT or token gated yep. that you would just automatically have access to if you're on your browser with your wallet that like has that. You would never have to log in at all or anything. Yep. Like it you would, would never have to store anyone's email password. Yeah, I wouldn't like, get anyone's any email, yep. anything, right? And then, the, I mean, the neat thing with that too is then like membership is like an asset, right? It's not like something you pay $100 for once and then like you've just lost That's $100, cool. right? Like, I you like can, that a lot. You can be a member for six months and then resell your membership. And so it, it the interesting thing that you kind of see with NFTs then is that it allows you to charge way more, right? Because it's like, okay, there's like only a lifetime going- membership. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. only ever going to be a hundred like made you think like core members and you have to have one of the, you know, think, think boy NFTs. That and, is actually a cool idea. We should, if, if you right, do it's this, like, like, yeah, it's there, there's, there's some cool stuff there. Right. And it, it's nice too, because then it's like, you don't, you don't, you don't treat it the same way, right? Like I would think pretty hard about spending a hundred dollars to join somebody's like premium Facebook group. But spending a thousand dollars on a token that gets me access that I could then resell probably for a thousand dollars at any time, it's like yep. a very different transaction. Yeah. So I think that stuff's gonna be yeah. pretty interesting. And but, it also makes you like way more likely to spend that money because it's not like spending the money anymore. It's like yeah, I'm just getting I'm getting an asset in return. So like whatever the value of that asset is, sure it can go up or down, but it's not zero. 
Exactly. And, you feel and then a lot it behooves you to it. help market that community because then you yep. increase the value of your own asset, right? Like, yeah, it's, it's cool. But we'll There's talk about that on that. We'll talk about that on your podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's actually so that was that sparked the thought just now, which is so anyone who doesn't know, I have a, another podcast called Outside the System. I actually talked to the Fountain uh, CEO today, and like, oh, cool. We were ta- so I was asking him like the backstory, like how did you because Lightning really only got kind of anywhere close to like uh, mainstream Bitcoin adoption, even not even mainstream adoption because it's not there last year. So I was like, were you already working on a podcast app? Like, how did you get, like, how did you land on this kind of idea? So he was actually working on a podcast app that hadn't launched yet called Fountain. And he's also been an early Bitcoiner. Like, I think he got in in like 2012 or 2011 or something uh, and was part of that community already. But it was just like a separate thing, right? He was like working on this podcast stuff. And then he's like, I started reading more about lightning and like the wheels started turning that like, you know, why can't we use Lightning to fund creators, basically? And and then Adam Curry, who's a guy who's been on uh, Rogan and it's like this radio personality, him and there's another guy, Nick, who I don't, I think his name is Nick. Uh, they started this whole podcasting 2.0 thing. And then, so Oscar, who's the Fountain CEO, connected with those guys. And that's sort of how the genesis of all this happened. Uh, but that's what sparked my thought. It was like, Lightning was just a payments technology, right? It's just like a way to solve some of the uh, block time issues on Bitcoin and fees issues on Bitcoin. So just like kind of make it possible to buy a cup of coffee. That was like the whole the whole genesis behind Lightning. But now yeah. there's all these other tools coming about, which are like like second order things, which weren't the original idea, but people now took the tool and the new rules that are around there. And they're now thinking like, what are these new possibilities that we can we can do with that? Totally. Um, I think NFTs are like another one where we're just like you had something in your newsletter last week, I think, around yeah. like the Avatar project. So maybe you want to talk about that because I thought that was that was fascinating. Well, yeah, I, I think it's like we had this 2017-2018 ICO era of everybody launching tokens as fundraising mechanisms, and there were tons of scams, and most of those projects are dead and gone. But it introduced this interesting new paradigm of community ownership fundraising like you know immediate liquidity like access to capital it, it kind of changed the fundraising game in probably the most interesting way since Y Combinator maybe or since like the safe agreement and that you know even though most of those projects died it created this interesting kind of like new paradigm and i think nfts are the similar thing where you had all these crazy profile picture projects that launched in the last year and you could make a ton of money flipping these if you you know played the market right and everything. But most of those are going to zero. Like if you're still holding some of those profile pictures, like they're probably not going to be worth anything in a year or two. But it introduced this cool new way to bootstrap a community to give like you know group ownership and identity around like you know a shared set of beliefs. It you know created these new like standards for like membership for access for you know owning music or articles or you know whatever and that i think is going to evolve in pretty interesting ways over the next few years yeah i think that's like that's the kind of thing that is a paradigm shift basically totally yeah right and and that's that's where i think you know we we can tie the book back in you know pretty interesting here is like and he's got this good line towards the end where he says you know paradigm debates are not about their problem solving ability 
But the issue is which paradigm should in the future guide research on problems, many of which neither competitor can yet claim to resolve completely, right? So it's like, these are not explicit, like linear improvements. And it uses the evolution analogy where he says like, there are these sort of like random blips on the map. And then occasionally one will present a lot of interesting solutions to existing problems. And then other scientists will say like, well, hold on, like there's something cool here and then start exploring it with normal science and kind of like taking it to some conclusion. And, you know, that obviously happens in technology too, right? Where like the, you know, the original, you know, like Bitcoin tech, it's like, okay, like it solved like this set of problems. And that was like one interesting paradigm. And then I'd say like the Ethereum tech is this other, you know, paradigm where it's like, okay, well, you know, what if it was like Turing complete and, you know, had this like scripting language built on it. And that like has evolved in this other kind of interesting direction. But I, I like his analogy that almost none of this is intentional, right? It's, yeah. it's very, it's very like evolution. It's very like natural selection. It's like, you know, random stuff gets tried and then one of these trials will present a lot of interesting future solutions and then people will like glom onto that and start pursuing all of them. And that's when like a paradigm really takes hold. And, and almost kind of, by definition, almost by definition, you have to have a lot of failed projects in there too. Yeah, totally. Right. Cause right. like in evolution, the same thing, like there's a lot of dead ends in evolution. Well, it, and this, yeah. it's like, it's a good uh, fact about Newton, right? Where it's like a third of his life was spent on the calculus and the physics and everything, but another third was spent on alchemy, Right. Like right. he, he spent just as much of his life trying to figure out how to turn different metals into gold and never went anywhere because that just wasn't a good paradigm to try to figure out. Right. Uh, and I think the other third, he was like super religious, right? Like, wasn't he, you know, like just shy of being a priest or something? I don't know as much about like, him as, uh, yeah, as I should. I'm going to look it up, look it up right now. Yeah. I, I know the alchemy one is true. So it's kind of like, you know, not yeah, everything's going to be a winner. It says alchemist. Yeah. It says English mathematician, physicist, astronomer, alchemist. No, yeah, you're right. You're right. He was, looks like he was pretty religious as well. Yeah. So these um, things, right? He like, studied, he, yeah, it says beyond his work in the mathematical sciences, Newton d- dedicated much of his time to the study of alchemy and biblical chronology. Interesting. Yeah. So not um, all the paradigms are going to hit. Although I have read like uh, a little bit about uh, how alchemy was obviously like the, the, paradigm was wrong but like the techniques that were developed yeah, through yeah. it were very influential in chemistry later on i'm sure uh, yeah well, I, so it's kind of like, interesting like yeah i like what he talks about in the book with uh laden jars where you know the idea of like illuminating a glass jar came from the idea that electricity was like a fluid that had to be captured mm. yep. and then they kind of like accidentally discovered illumination and like it's kind of neat where uh and we've talked, I know we've talked about this before, I guess maybe in happy accidents, but where like the wrong premises can actually lead to interesting conclusions. And then it's kind of like, okay, well, how did we end up here? Cause like we thought yeah. <laughs> this was true and now we're here and like, this is cool too, but like, let's figure this out. Like uh, Vi- Viagra was originally. A, oh yeah. Uh, yep. That was a great it, one. It was yeah. for like heart attacks or something. Right. Like it, yeah, I think it was, it was a, is it like blood pressure or something. I'm going to look. Yeah. Blood pressure. Too. It was like some sort of heart medicine. And then, like everybody in the trials, it was used to treat chest pain. Yep, chest pain. It was used yeah, used to treat an- angina. <laughs> and everyone was like, "Well, my chest pain is still here, but <laughs> <laughs> it said it was used to it was used to treat reduced blood flow to the heart. I guess instead it was used it to sent re- the blood flow <laughs> elsewhere, reduced blood flow somewhere else." <laughs> 
<laughs> so funny. Can you imagine the like clinical trial with that? Being it's like, yeah, all right, funny. you came yeah. in here with with chest pain, and then everybody walks out with like <laughs> just this like massive boner. <laughs> Hilarious. It's like, well, I think we found something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, e- even antibiotics, right? Like he left his window open and it wafted in yeah. from outside, right? And killed the mold <laughs> sample. I mean, it's like some of this stuff is so crazy. It, it's interesting too, because he, uh, Kuhn talks a bit in the book about like some of the difference between normal science and like paradigm shifting science. And I think there's this good distinction between what would have been figured out anyway versus what was truly a like leap forward. And he talks about like the oxygen thing where he, he kind of talks about it as a paradigm shift, but also like three different people discovered oxygen at the same time, yeah. which means that like all the tools were there and it was going to get discovered. And so the individual who discovered it was kind of like less impressive of a feat compared to, you know, somebody like Newton driving the calculus and like actually making this like giant zero to one leap forward in our knowledge that like might not have happened for another 50 or a hundred years or something. Right. Uh, th- that's what I think is kind of like this interesting difference between kind of like the two. It, same thing with like, you know, mobile phone tech, right? Like we could have kept making faster flip phones for a few more years. Like nobody had to invent the iPhone when yeah. uh, Apple did it, but they did. And the, and iPhone, was, mm-hmm. the, the cool thing about the iPhone thing too, is it's not just a technological invention. It's like very much also a user experience innovation too because it's like the sidekick was there before the iphone yeah yeah it had a lot of the same features like i think they even had an app store and stuff and it just wasn't it wasn't as user friendly it never whatever reason it never got the adoption that the iphone got and then the iphone kind of thing like or smartphones i should say not just the iphone but once you got to a certain level of like market penetration where you could almost assume a significant percentage of people at least in like certain areas had smartphones that allowed you to do all sorts of other cool stuff as yeah. like a, as a developer, as a, as a business. And that's sort of like the interesting thing with the iPhone is it's not really like a science based. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's not science, but I guess nothing that w- they were doing was like the first time it had been done. It was just like the first time it had been packaged that elegantly into one, one device, basically. It's the, uh, it was the blue circles versus green circles, you know? So it was little stuff like that, right? Like when you when you see somebody has a green circle in text. And, oh yeah! Oh yeah! Right? yeah it's yeah, like, yeah. Ah, you're like, like ah. I don't know if I trust them as much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like all those little things, right? The best is that Google is like upset with them about that. <laughs> uh, of course they would. They're, like, they're not like, letting us play. <laughs> I mean, Apple. It's like the most subtle. I don't know, like discrimination is too strong of a word, but it does treat non iPhones <laughs> as second class citizens. Right. You're not in the club. Yeah. It's like, Oh, Ooh, you're like, mm. <laughs> maybe you should use WhatsApp. <laughs> I wonder, but like the direction and timing of different inventions is really interesting too. Like I, I remember reading a little bit about like the Tesla uh, versus Edison kind of things, oh, right? Yeah. Like what was it? The DC versus AC, AC DC. Yeah debate and then some of tesla's like other things was were not adopted versus yeah like, and there was some like weird stuff supposedly that he figured out that we like still don't have right like he, yeah he figured I out don't long, know how much long of that... range electricity right 
which is like yeah like electricity transfer or something like that yeah yeah let me see he basically figured out like broadcast electricity supposedly so you could have like one giant electricity tower that could broadcast power for the whole area which like intuitively seems like it wouldn't work but i don't know like maybe so in 1893 it says he made uh i guess he wrote and then made pronouncements on the possibility of wireless communication so not uh, i i think there's another section where he was like talking about uh wireless power but this one he actually worked on the actual tower like he got funding to build the actual tower and just ran out of funding it says before it was completed like there's a lot. I have to go through his Wikipedia page. It looks super yeah. interesting. Yeah, wireless lighting. Actually, you're right. Okay. Yeah, Good that's what I'm thinking that. of. Okay. Yeah, it says they never made a commercially viable version. But yeah, I guess like going back to that, it's like they were both working on electricity related inventions, and so you like kind of think about like the timing. Yeah. It was probably going to be done around that time, whether right. by one of them or maybe there's somebody else working on it, right? Like. It's just like, I guess if you have all the base inventions to invent something like the next thing in the tree, basically, someone's going to figure figure that part out because it, in some ways it is puzzle solving at that point when the, ba- like yeah. the oxygen thing too, right? It's like everybody within those same few years was circling the idea. <laughs> they were circling the exact same thing. They just like were all kind of slightly missing it. And so somebody was going to get there. Yeah. It's just unclear who. Yeah, that's why I kind of wonder to some extent if, you know, we talk about like, oh, wow, we made no progress with space flight for 50 years, basically. And then SpaceX came along and made insane progress in a decade and a half. And I kind of wonder if, you know, obviously, like Elon's insanity is part of that. But I wonder if another part is just that we needed the computation to get to a certain point for a lot of these things to be possible. Mm. Right. Like you, you couldn't have reusable rockets the way you could have reusable planes without like insane, you know, millisecond responsive automated guidance systems, right? Like yeah. you, you couldn't, so I don't think you could self land a rocket, right? Like I'd be curious to hear a physicist, you know, explain why I'm wrong, but I just don't think it would like work out in the same way. Just looking at how SpaceX does it, right? Like I can't imagine somebody. Well, I mean, for one, you'd have to be in the booster rocket, which would be its own <laughs> its own problem. Um, but it's like, okay, maybe a lot of these things just actually weren't doable until the computers got to a good enough point, and now we're able to like go back into the physical world and do cool stuff with them, right? Like, it's like the right person with the, right, the right timing time. on the technology yeah, yeah. and the right amount of craziness to be like, I don't care how it's been done, like we can do it this way now. Exactly. But you're right, the the like foundational thing might have been that we had that computational capability now, which we didn't have before. Like you probably couldn't have done that in 1970. No, definitely not. And this is the same thing I've heard with uh, VR as well, because VR has been being tried since the nineties. And it's sort of always had this promise of like, Oh, like VR, VR, like it's coming. It's going to be the next big thing. But apparently the only reason that it's like just now starting to get to an interesting spot is cell phone tech because Mm the like when you put on a vr headset it's basically just a phone that's like you know been amped up and like strapped on your face but the like parallel technology of uh ultra high quality uh, ultra high fidelity like micro lcd screens is basically like what needed to be figured out for a lot of the vr headset stuff to like look good and so because phones made all this progress now oculus and these other companies can build cool 
headsets. So I, on top of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I find that aspect of this stuff really interesting too, right? Where it's like, how does making progress here end up like coming over here and like pulling up this area with it? Yeah, and then there's other things where it's like the timing, I guess, wasn't fully dependent on the underlying technology. Like you think about Bitcoin, right? For example, people had tried similar things. Like there's that hash cash idea. Yeah, yeah. That was there be- right before, Bit I think gold. in the 90s. Bit gold, right. Yeah, that was another one. Because there's nothing like inherent in Bitcoin that's like, oh, it had to be invented in 2008 or 2009. I forget which year. I think um, probably critical mass of networked computers would probably be yeah. part of it, right? Like the internet would have to be yeah. sufficiently established. and then, That's true. It couldn't happen in like 96. It wasn't going to happen in 96. Yeah, yeah. And the whole like Byzantine general problem, like, you know, solving consensus without third party, like that seemed like a novel cryptography that's what I mean. Like, was that like right? a, so was that a mathematical and like a cryptography breakthrough rather than like a technological, mm. uh, I guess what I'm saying is like, in theory, could it have been done in like 2005 or uh, 2004? Yeah. Pro- like, could someone have solved that problem? Right. I mean, seems it, like it. Yeah. Seems like yeah. It. Yeah. Just seems like, but this. that also begs the question of like, what if it hadn't been done until like 2030? Right. <laughs> right. And like, yeah, it, you know, like, like it didn't have to happen. Required. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Like, have I mean. you read yeah. uh, Have you read the third body problem or three body problem? Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, I have not. And everybody has not everybody, but I had dinner with a deal like a couple weeks ago again, and he was bringing that up because I think he yeah. he was asking people what books you'd recommend that you have to read if you could only recommend mm. like three books. Yeah, and he said yeah. that book came up uh, several times. The that series, I guess, the series yeah. came up three times. Yeah. The, the reason I ask, and this isn't a spoiler, but the the alien civilization actually no i'll use a different example the guy who wrote the martian his, andy uh andy weir, weir. Andy weir. yeah his his new book hail mary is like a, it's very similar to the martian but the guy's like lost in space and he has amnesia and has no idea why he's like on a spaceship lost in space uh it's good he ends up interacting with this alien group and then it it turns out that they figured out space flight and like you know inter uh like inter galaxy travel without figuring out relativity. So <laughs> they like predicted all of their, you know, and they hadn't done much travel at these distances. This was like their, their grandest voyage. And so Newtonian physics had gotten them far enough. And then <sighs> they had like planned this massive voyage, but didn't know about relativity. So the like aliens explaining like, yeah, I don't know how I got here so quickly. Like, this is really weird, right? Like we predicted this, but, and so we have all this extra fuel and you know, which I guess we don't need. And the guy's like, Oh shit. Like you have no idea how time works. Right. Yeah. And so it, it kind of makes you think like, huh, makes you think, huh, we haven't done that. In a while. There we go. <laughs> we haven't done that. In, <laughs> we haven't done that in years. <laughs> yeah. We're back. It's uh right. It's like what, you know, one, what are the like fundamental things that we don't know that actually are like unlocking huge bits of knowledge, but that we've been able to like get by without knowing and, you know, like, like duct tape or something like we just like duct taped over that and it was good enough. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Like, eh, this is fine. Right. Like, you know, maybe, yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe my dark matter theory is right. Right. And there's like actually some much better explanation. Um, you know, is it, like, it, but it's, it's like close enough or something. You're like, yeah, with that yeah, adjustment, yeah. it's close enough. Exactly. Little co-host joined us. <laughs> She's very little curious. is right. Little is right. <laughs> oh. 
All right. Oh, I'll... the cutest one of us three. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I gotta um, go. Take yeah, I was gonna say. I think we're one. Yep. I think uh, that was everything. Actually, I had in my notes. So we I stayed mostly on topic. We did end. a pretty good job. We minus a like forty-five minute tangent in there, but yeah. that's okay. That was great. I mean, By the th- way, this... the cool thing with go ahead. The, the cool thing with Riverside. So uh, if you're listening, we're recording this with a new setup. Um, the one cool thing is you have like you can make sounds like there's like a soundboard Ooh, in there. It's dangerous. Uh, I've never played around with it yet, but like we might have to do like a tangent button. Like we've talked about that in the in the past. For sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can like create a custom sound and just like uh, I mean they have some pre built, but you can create custom sounds too. So I like it. You guys can look forward to a ta- tangent button in the future. <laughs> <laughs> next next book is uh, Fourth Turning with a deal, right? Yep. Cool. And then after that, I actually don't know what the the next one is. Yeah. Seeing like a state at some point, I think, is after that with a deal. But I think there's some other book we'll probably do in between. Yeah, I think it's your turn to choose, right? Ooh, okay. All right. I will... uh, I don't have one off the top of my head that I would do, but... Go go look through your bookshelf and see what you need. I know. What what I've bought... Yeah, or what I've bought like over the years that I just haven't gotten to. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, also, um, uh, side, side note, I'm rereading Infinite Jest. Ooh, that is a project. And you know what? It's way more enjoyable the second time. Really? Because it's not yeah. in order anyway, right? As, no. Uh, yeah. But you you know all the characters now. You you know that you're not going to get like a very satisfying resolution at the end. You... Oh, so you're not reading it for like story resolution, right? This you're, time, you're the just, second time. Yeah. yeah, it's almost like you're just reading it. Like the way I'm reading it now is like this is kind of a glimpse into DFW's psyche. And this is just like a bunch of different stories about like addiction, love, struggle, meaning, like happiness, all of those things. And it doesn't need to always make sense or be cohesive. Like I can just enjoy his perspective on these things. And it's it's really nice. I'm really really enjoying it actually. Ooh, I might have to might have to do that. Yeah. Um. If you're yeah, if you haven't listened to our two Infinite Jest uh, related episodes, there's two of them. One is our thoughts on the book, and then the other one is our thoughts on like all the cool theories and speculation. Yeah, and um, I, I think yeah. it's funny. Like this this is almost the uh, the more enlightened take on the book, perhaps, <laughs> than our our desire to like you know solve the theories <laughs> behind it, right? Like, yeah, uh, it's sort of, oh, okay. There, there, there is no answer for a lot of this stuff. It's just kind of absurd and crazy. And you're just kind of supposed to enjoy the ride. Maybe, um, it sounds is a lot like life. Too. All yeah. the things that you just said, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's actually, well, maybe that's life, right? Like there's nothing to figure out. Exactly. And you know, it's the, the name of the entertainment is infinite jest in the book, right? Yeah. So the, the point is probably that you're supposed to keep kind of coming back to it and being like, <laughs> you know, there, there's something else here that. I'm supposed to enjoy or get from it, but yeah, that's cool. Yeah. I, yeah. I haven't done, I haven't like reread a fiction book in a while. It's probably worth doing. Cause you like, when you read it the first time you're doing it for, you want to just resolve the story. And then probably the second time you're like, all right, I know what the story is. Now I'm just reading it because it's enjoyable. Yeah, totally. On that note, I know you got a you got other responsibilities, so let's uh, let's end it. Uh, you can reach out to us on Twitter; is probably the best place. I'm at the Rail Neil S. I'm at Nat Eliason. Be sure to leave us a review everywhere iPods or 
podcasts iPod. are <laughs> iPods. Everywhere podcasts are sold. And, Wherever uh, iPods are sold is that too. probably yeah, eBay or something, maybe. Yeah, right? <laughs> leave us a review on eBay. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, leave us a review. If you got value from this episode, uh, you can send us sats on Fountain or any other Podcast 2.0 app. And on that note, we will see you next time for Fourth Turning. See ya. Have a good one.